Hello and welcome to The Wire, your national and independent coverage of current affairs right across Australia on community and Indigenous radio. I'm Mary-Kate Hannigan, coming to you from 4ZZZ in Mianjin, Brisbane. And today on the show... The fact that the church is willing to engage in a listening process has been very well received because that's been seen as how genuine our desire is. The Anglican Church of Southern Queensland will issue an apology to LGBTQIA plus people for harm caused by the church's past attitude and behaviours. Also, we, we definitely do devalue care work and that's meant that these payments, the, the rates have been tinkered with, they've been sort of slowly reduced over time, which has really impacted women and, and the kids that they care for. A new report finds Australia's family tax benefit system inadequate in supporting low-income families and contributes to women's economic insecurity. And later today... There are dozens and dozens of different types of mosquitoes in Australia. They're all found in different types of environments. And while the dry conditions isn't good for those mosquitoes that rely on rain and floodwater. We've got mosquitoes along our coast who take advantage. What you need to know about mosquito-borne diseases ahead of another scorching hot summer. We'll have this and more for you over the next half hour. Thanks for being with us today. We're on air across Australia, thanks to the Community Radio Network and support from the Community Broadcasting Foundation. First up today, Australian farmers have welcomed the announcement of a Senate inquiry into rising costs and revenues of major supermarkets. The Greens secured cross-party support to establish the inquiry, which will investigate price gouging, food inflation and supply chain issues. National Radio News reporter Georgia Fisher asked National Farmers Federation CEO Tony Ma about the imbalance of power in the Australian food supply chain. Well, what we've seen happen over the last few decades is the market power of a couple of large retailers really grow and to the point now where they have significant control, influence, power over the retail market. There is you know, a third player that's been in the market for a little while now, but the dominance of two of the large players uh, has been slowly creeping for you know a number of decades now to the point where it is really quite significant. And when we're talking about that supply chain from getting you know a produce from farm to table, can you just explain how that works a little bit and where the money's being lost and just talking about where the transparency really needs to be in that process? Yeah, so it it varies from one sector to another. So for you know red meat, for example, for beef or lamb, or livestock products, um, the livestock obviously have to go and get processed, and it depends on you know what cuts or what markets um, they're going into. So that has a large influence over the price for things like horticulture. You know, obviously a very perishable product. So farmers sell that, it often gets um, minimally transferred or transformed. You know, it doesn't uh, undergo a lot of processing unless it's going into preserve it, uh, preserves or canned product. But, you know, bananas or blueberries or apples or those sorts of things get uh, washed, they get packed and they get put on the supermarket shelf. So there's not a lot of transformation that occurs with some of those horticulture products. Other products like grain obviously get processed quite significantly into... Um, you know, different products like pasta or biscuits or bread and those sorts of things. So it does vary significantly from one sector to another, but for most recently, the disparity has been quite 
huge in terms of the livestock prices. So farmers are getting very low prices for their livestock that they're selling in the marketplace and the prices on the supermarket shelves aren't reflecting those, those low prices. They have just announced the Senate inquiry. In terms of this downfall and this problem that's occurring in our industry, what are the opportunities and benefits that you think the inquiry will bring and like also the limitations that you, you fear with it? So the inquiry should be able to shine a light and provide some transparency on the dealings between farmers, hopefully processors, but definitely retailers, and how they operate and what power they exert and, and have over the supply chain. And really what we want to do is to uncover any problems or challenges that are in that marketplace and then put in place measures to correct them or remedy the problem. So if it's that a company is uh, having or misusing its market power um, or you know, having unfair contract terms or um, you know, exerting more influence or more um, dominance over the supply chain than what is reasonable, then we need to have the government put in place measures that will address that. In terms of like the immediate and, and tangible actions, I guess, that the government can be doing now um, before the inquiry is actually commenced, what are some of the recommendations that the National Farmers Federation has put out there? Well, we've asked the government to continue to look at their competition policy, and they are doing that. So they're having a look at you know the competition legislation, how effective it is, uh, are there measures that need to be changed, and they have made some changes to the unfair contract terms. So we want... Uh, in addition to that, we've got the ACCC, which is you know the cop on the beat, effectively, for competition policy to actually have a little bit more power and a little bit more resources to allow it to do uh, more of its job. It does a good job, but it's constrained a little bit in terms of um, some of the resources and some of the powers that it has. Is there any sort of suggestions or things that you guys think that um, could be, be being done at a retail level? Any any improvements into the way that transparency is happening through that supply chain all the way through to farmers? I think it's just a recognition that you know the, the agriculture supply chain is quite volatile. It's quite cyclical. So you know, understanding and recognising that there's um, a whole range of impacts or influences over the supply of agricultural products and for the retailers to recognise and understand that and also to build you know, mutually beneficial relationships that allow farmers to invest in their business, to allow them to get a reasonable return, uh, allows them to be you know, resilient and deal with the fluctuations. CEO of the National Farmers Federation, Tony Ma there, speaking with National Radio News, Georgia Fisher. Across Australia, you're listening to The Wire, Community Radio's National Current Affairs Program. The Anglican Church of Southern Queensland will issue an apology to LGBTQIA plus people for harm caused by the church's past attitude and behaviours. The church began consultation with the LGBTQIA plus community last week, inviting current or past members and their families to share past experiences in its parishes, schools or other institutions via email or committee meeting. 
To learn more about the consultation process, The Wire's Eduardo Jordan spoke with Dean from Brisbane's St John's Cathedral and Committee Chair Reverend Peter Catt. The process began with a motion at our Synod back in 2022, where the Synod, which is the Parliament of the Church for Southern Queensland, decided it would like to make an apology to LGBTQA plus people for past harm caused and the committee that was formed realised that in order to make a good apology one needs to listen to those who have been hurt so that when we make an apology we're actually apologising in response to what we've heard rather than uh, to what we imagine we might have to apologise for. So how important is it for the Anglican Church to produce this apology and also for the LGBTIQ plus community to receive it? Well, it's certainly important for us because we've realised that in the past we've caused harm and when one realises one has caused harm, the best thing to do is to seek to make amends and the way to make an amends is to issue an apology. We've done some initial consultations with the LGBTIQA plus community and it's the idea of the church making an apology has been very warmly received and the fact that the church is willing to engage in a listening process has been very well received because that's been seen as a marker of how genuine our desire is and we've certainly been encouraged by the rainbow members of our church uh, who feel uh, that uh, their position in the church has been recognized as part of this process. Fantastic. What other actions is the Anglican Church doing to move away from those behaviors from the past? One of the very significant areas of activity is the work that's going on in our schools. Our schools have adopted uh, very positive approaches to sexuality and gender diverse children, providing lots of support for them as they negotiate the complexities. And so our schools are being recognised as very positive places and involved in this process of seeking to make an apology means that uh, large numbers of church communities are reflecting on their life and seeking to listen to uh, the sexuality and gender diverse peoples who are already part of the church. As an extra measure here at the cathedral, we've just announced that from February we will have uh, joining our staff a transgender priest who will be working as an outreach officer to the Rainbow community. Reverend, the Anglican Church has, as you mentioned, has started this consultation with the LGBTQ plus community. How can this community sector give their experiences to the diocese? Yes, at the moment we've we've got a dedicated email address, uh, which is apology at anglicanchurchsq.com. Org.au, and we're seeking to get that apology address well known around communities. And could you please tell us a little bit more about how much you cover on the southern Queensland um, area? I, I understand it's from up north in Bandaberg or something down to the Gold Coast? 
That's correct. The diocese, or the Anglican Church, Southern Queensland, is really the bottom third of the state of Queensland, or one of the, one of the smaller, a smaller third, I have to say. So it's a, it's a strip across the state that goes across the, from the coast to the Northern Territory border, and uh, just north of Bundaberg from the New South Wales border. So that means that everyone from the LGBTQ plus community from that particular area, area can send their conversations and experiences. That's correct. The reason we're not looking beyond, I mean, people who lived here in the past and have moved overseas or interstate or further off into the state, that's fine. As a church community that's located just in that part of Queensland, we can't issue an apology on behalf of the church, say, in Western Australia or Sydney. Reverend Peter Catt there, ending the report by The Wire's Eduardo Jordan. You're listening to The Wire, independent current affairs on community and Indigenous radio. I'm Mary-Kate Hannigan in Mianjin, Brisbane. A big hello to our friends in Alice Springs on 8CCC 102.1 FM to our listeners in Bathurst on 2MCE, and to the other side of the country, to Radio Galari in Broome, Western Australia. A recent report has highlighted the shortcomings in Australia's family tax benefit system, indicating insufficient support for low-income families and raising concerns of lasting barriers to women's economic security. For vulnerable families, these payments are a means of survival, keeping parents and children above the poverty line. But research from the University of Melbourne and the Brotherhood of St Lawrence finds frequent pauses in the indexation of the payment, coupled with complex rules and compliance arrangements, are putting families at risk of debt and increased financial hardship. Dr Emily Porter, sociologist and senior research fellow at the Brotherhood of St Lawrence, shares further insights into her findings. Yeah, so the family tax benefit was introduced in 2000 as part of the GST um, compensation package. Um, but they're actually the most recent kind of form of family payments, which has existed in some form since the 1940s, and some form of family payments have existed for over a century. So they aim to F2BA. The, the payment has two parts, F2BA and F2BB. F2BA aims to compensate families for the costs of raising their children, and F2BB aims to help people with the indirect costs of raising children, so taking time out from work so you can provide care. Um, over time, th these payments have become less adequate, so they're indexed, they were previously indexed to pensions, they're now indexed to CPI, which has reduced the value over time, and as cost-saving measures, there's been frequent pauses in the indexation. They've also quite a complex administratively so you need to be able to estimate your income in advance and that leads to high risks of debt particularly for people with insecure incomes. And when you say debt if I'm correct these payments aren't loans they don't need to be repaid how does the debt come into play here? Even though they're called a 
the family tax benefit. Um, for the majority, so for 95% of, of recipients, they get them fortnightly. So they act as essentially a form of income support payments. And so if people are deemed to be overpaid, then they have to pay that back. And that's where the debts come from. In terms of eligibility and even people seeking these payments, have we seen an increase recently at all because of the cost of living crisis? People can only access the payment if their income is below a certain level. Um, so they're, they're targeted towards low and middle income families, although in, increasingly middle income families are more likely to be missing out because the the income thresholds don't haven't actually kept up with the sort of um, where they were when the payments were introduced in in the 2000s. Are there any other main points of contention or main main issues with the system? Obviously, as we said, adequacy and the complexity and dis- debt risk that comes into that exists, but also they create a barrier to women re-entering the workforce. So. So as family income increases and particularly as the income of the secondary worker in in a couple increases, the payment rate reduces and that provides a disincentive. So it essentially creates an effective marginal tax rate where as women start to go back to the workforce or increase hours um, after raising children, they start to lose the payment. So they face this kind of double whammy of, of... of, of starting to pay tax, starting to pay Medicare, facing childcare costs, but also losing the family tax benefit. So it creates a real disincentive, um, which has lifelong implications for you know women's earnings, women's financial well-being, um, and things like super and ability to like um, build up earnings and assets over the life course. I can imagine this contributes to a bit of a cycle as well. Even though the payments are designed to to support families. On one hand, I guess, going back to work and getting more income that way, but that might not necessarily be the best option for you and your family if that means you're no longer eligible for the benefit. Yeah, so some women might face a um, effective marginal tax rate of up to 80%. So for every additional dollar they earn, as they lose um, entitlements such as parenting payment or family tax benefit A and B, um, as well as facing childcare costs and income tax rates, it means that um, the value of them them working is really minimal. So if you're only getting, say, 26 cents for every dollar that, that you earn, it's a massive disincentive to actually return to the workforce or increase your hours of work. In terms of options or even recommendations for reform, what are the main recommendations to kind of fill in these inadequacies? So we, there's some immediate actions that can be taken straight away to improve the operation of the current system. So we can reinstate the indexation of family tax benefit in line with pensions so that it does keep up with, it, it better keeps up with the cost of raising children over time. We can also remove the maintenance income test and maintenance action test. Um, so those tests affect people receiving the family tax benefit who also receive child support income. So around a third of ch- family tax benefit recipients do receive um, child support income, and, and they're much more likely to end up with debt. So removing the maintenance income test and the maintenance action test would really help those people and reduce the rate of de- debt. Um, and we can also uh, look at how shared care, so so where families are, are separated, look at how um, care is distributed across the different parties. That was Dr Emily Porter there, ending that report. A different take on Australian current affairs. This is The Wire on your community radio.
With extreme weather conditions already being felt around Australia, experts are warning people to be on alert for mosquito-related diseases like Japanese encephalitis. Over the last two summers, we saw La Nina usher in heavy rains and unprecedented flooding across the country, with consistent wet conditions ripe for mosquito spread. So what do we need to know about these diseases? And what precautions should you take as many prepare for a hot, wet summer? In search of these answers, The Wire's Tony Pankalewick spoke with University of Sydney's Dr Cameron Webb, a clinical associate professor in the School of Medical Sciences. What makes Japanese encephalitis stand out compared to other mosquito-borne diseases? Are there any differences? Yeah, there's certainly some differences between Japanese encephalitis virus and the disease it causes compared to some of the other mosquito-borne diseases in Australia. One of the most important things to consider is that although cases of Japanese encephalitis are very rare, they can be potentially fatal. And so there aren't very many other viruses spread by mosquitoes in Australia that can cause fatal illness. The most common mosquito-borne disease is the Ross River virus, and even though there are thousands of cases of that every year, that'll never be fatal. And even though there's only dozens of cases of Japanese encephalitis virus and sadly people have passed away because of that illness. So what are the symptoms of Japanese encephalitis? Headaches, fever, vomiting, fatigue. It's sort of mild form if you could call it that but then it can escalate to headaches, nausea, dizziness and even slipping into coma and in most severe cases there's fatal outcomes of disease and even for the people who do survive those severe cases of illness sometimes they can suffer you know lifelong neurological problems that significantly impacts their quality of life. Just out of curiosity, what about local Australian marsupials such as kangaroos and wallabies? Can they get affected? Do they have a different immune system? Yeah, it's a good question and we don't think that the role that native wildlife can play, so that our kangaroos, wallabies, possums and things like that can get infected with the virus. Importantly, water birds can and so the animals that mostly become infected from which the mosquitoes will pick up the virus are water birds and there's a whole range of things, particularly herons and egrets are thought to be the most important animals. And you can imagine that when we get extensive rainfall and flooding, the wetlands fill up with water. It's great for water bird breeding, great for mosquitoes. And those two factors together mean there's a chance of an outbreak of human disease. So for this summer, should we be cautious and mindful of Japanese encephalitis or other mosquito-borne diseases? Because the virus is relatively new to the southern areas of Australia, I think we need to be pretty cautious about drawing conclusions as to what the climatic conditions are like and what the risk of human disease will be. But there's no doubt if we're having hotter, dry, conditions, we're going to see fewer mosquitoes, less water bird breeding, and probably on balance, less likely that we're going to see activity of Japanese encephalitis. But the important thing to remember is that there are dozens and dozens of different types of mosquitoes in Australia. They're all found in different types of environments. And while the dry conditions isn't good for those mosquitoes that rely on rain and floodwater, we've got mosquitoes along our coast who take advantage of the water that comes into wetlands thanks to high tides. And so we might see fewer mosquitoes in some of our inland floodplain type environments, but along the coast, our mangroves and salt Marsh, those mosquitoes might take full advantage of the current conditions. So what do you think are the best ways to keep safe from mosquito-borne diseases or even just generally, apart from just simply using a insect repellent? Look, the main thing is, is to avoid contact with mosquitoes as much as possible. I mean, you can do that in a few different ways. So we know mosquitoes are most active in the late afternoon and early evening, particularly around bushland and wetland areas. So trying to avoid where you can those areas is a great idea. But if you're out in those areas, you can wear insect repellent. The important thing is, is that all of the products that you get from your local supermarket and pharmacy can be very effective, but you have to put it on as a nice even coat over all exposed areas of 
skin. So a dab here or there or a spray on the back of your shirt is not going to provide protection from mosquito bites. When you're around the home, make sure you tip out any water holding containers. So wherever there's water around the backyard, mosquitoes will lay eggs and those mosquitoes can certainly cause a bit of a problem. And of course, there are things like mosquito coils and other gadgets that release insecticide that can help in reducing the amount of mosquitoes that are around your campsite or your backyard. I try to avoid mosquitoes, but often I joke I've got royal blood, so they love me too much and I can't get away from them. You need to be a little extra vigilant if you're the, one, the people who are more likely to get bitten by mosquitoes. But of course, even if you don't think you're bitten very often by mosquitoes, don't be complacent because it only takes one bite from a mosquito to spread some of these diseases, that these disease-causing pathogens that can sadly cause potentially fatal illness. So I know Japanese encephalitis is relatively new to Australia, but is there actually a vaccine made for the virus? So we're very fortunate in the case of Japanese encephalitis in that there is a vaccine that's already available. And that's thanks to scientists who developed that vaccine because of the widespread activity in Southeast Asia. So that's available in Australia and the local, state and territory health authorities will have information available about who's eligible to get that vaccination and I'd really encourage everybody to check that out or speak to your GP to see if you can get access to it. And unfortunately, that's the end of the show today. Thanks so much for listening, wherever you are in Australia. The Wire has been produced today with great support of the Community Broadcasting Foundation and the Community Radio Network. You can check out all of our stories on our website at thewire.org.au and be sure to follow us on Facebook and Twitter. The Wire acknowledges the traditional custodians of the Turbal and Jagara countries on which this program has been produced and we pay our respects to Aboriginal elders past, present and emerging. Today, The Wire came to you from 4ZZZ in Mianjin, Brisbane. I'm Mary-Kate Hannigan. Thanks so much for your company. And we'll see you next time on The Wire.